The sermon you're about to listen to is from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org. Good morning. My name is Don. I'm just one of the pastors here uh, at the Axis. It is uh, always an honor to stand before you anytime, but especially on this day, I, I think Jeremy and Derek know that they slate me for Palm Sunday because it's how they keep me humble. Because um, this day and this week grind me into a fine powder from the pompous, egotistical man that I can be. And as you know, um, this week the city suffered something we hoped we would never suffer in a school shooting. And so I, I know we're all praying for those families and survivors. Um, again, how God's providential leading in my life, I got to try to minister to some of them. And the hope of Jesus Christ is why they stand. That's it. And we're going to see this morning why we stand that the God of creation would come and ride a donkey into a city. And so I really pray that we don't hear these words of this story that we've heard so many times. And that's why I, sometimes I envy new believers because the text is all new to them. And they are astounded by the things they see. And we older people should be too that when we come across this story we don't turn the volume down going yeah, it's Palm Sunday let's get to Easter because it starts this week that we get to see something beyond our physical vision in these words there is so much more here than meets the eye in other, in other words, the fact that it is a Sunday, the first day of the week, that it, that it is Nisan 10 on the calendar, a day when the Passover lambs were actually selected, those who in four days would be killed for the Passover meal should not escape us. It's not written there. It's beyond what the eye can see. The whole story of this week should take us back to Exodus 12, should remind us of why, why is he even here? Why, why is he purposely made his way here on this day and entered the city like he's doing? The story of Exodus 12 should, should overwhelm us that, that we too are grafted into a nation who still has a Passover meal because they haven't seen him as we've seen him. And we should weep over that. But we are grafted into that story that, that God who heard his people in slavery, in bondage, in Egypt, in Exodus, said, I have come down to set them free. I have come down. Because there's no way we can go up without that. Reaching down to save us. So I pray we never lose and turn the volume down on this and with our mind just see it for, for words on a page. It's beyond our sight. And we'll look at a few of those things in a moment. Let's pray over this one more time, and we'll go to work. 
Father, we do praise you for your actions in history. And so I pray this morning we are taught by your spirit, the, the spirit who yields to us the very minds of Christ. This, this one that we see, King Jesus, coming today, that we desire him in his fullness to come. So, Father, let the weight of your glory cover us and the life that's in your living water flow through us. Teach us the truth that we may have your kingdom reign in us, that we may serve this king whom we see come in today. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. So the story goes that, that Jesus is arriving on a spe specific day. And if we back up and just look at where he's come from, and I may have done this last year or the year before, he, he's come from Caesarea Philippi, and, and it's a, 105 miles away, a journey. And, and he's gone up there, we know, and at that moment actually revealed in Matthew 16 who he is to his disciples. He has said, who do others say that I am? But then he's pointedly said, who do you say that I am? And that's the moment that Peter kind of shines for just a moment and says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus immediately then takes that profession and says, yes. And we must, a divine imperative, I must go to Jerusalem, suffer, and die, and three days later be raised. He begins to tell that story. And they make their way down, and of course I've, I've got a map to help you see where he's coming from. He makes his way down from Caesarea Philippi, which is north of Capernaum, but he journeys along this way, and from what we get in the biblical text, he will cross the Jordan River and head on, uh, making his journey on foot for those 104 miles um, until he arrives at Bethany. And there we see in Jericho also, we see him lodging and staying overnight and preparing for this particular day, Palm Sunday. And so when we see that journey uh, taken in that route, again, it, 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 it strikes us as something remarkable because what's about to be done, according to, to what Matthew is saying, is he, he gives instructions as he gets to Bethany to in the village just beyond in Bethpage, which is a mile away from Jerusalem. It's on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives. And I've got a topographic of, of that one is really what I'd like to show next. Now, one more. The topographic of, yeah, there we go. So, so he's coming across the mountain and he's walked 104 miles. And as we know from the story in chapter 20, great crowds are also with him. And in fact, in our 21, the crowd goes from great to being greater. So swells of people, if you've ever been in a large arena, it, 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 it pales in comparison. It would be twice of what Alabama or Tennessee or one of those football Saturdays get, 200,000 people or so swelling around him, all being pilgrims coming to Jerusalem for the Passover week. And, and there's something about this moment that, that he's then walked 104 miles when he gives instruction, oh, go into that next village and you'll find a donkey tied there, 
a 104-mile walk. Everybody else is on foot, and they're supposed to be on foot. The Mishnah tractate that, that dictates these festivals says that all the men, at least, and anyone else, will appear before God in Jerusalem three times a year, Passover being one of those times. It goes on to say in the two schools of Jesus' day that they need to arrive on foot. And then it disqualifies some people, like if you couldn't make it, including little ones, who um, one school says if he can't ride, uh, the little one can't ride on dad's shoulders up the way because of this deep valley, then, then he's excluded. It's okay. He doesn't have to make it. Uh, the Rabbi Hillel says anyone young enough where even can't be taken by hand to make it up on foot, they can be excluded. But basically, everyone arrives on foot. So Jesus has walked 104 miles, and now he's going to ride the last mile in. There's something beyond what we can see. And Jesus, giving these specific instructions, we begin to see that, that things unfold that we need to see. The first of which is, is the instruction itself, the form that Matthew gives it. He says, you will go into this village and tell anyone who asks you, why, why are you untying and taking these donkeys? You will tell them the Lord has need of it. The word, Lord, we know that word in Greek, kurios. But in Matthew, its first dozen or so uses are for the Lord God, Yahweh, the God of the Exodus, the God who makes himself known in Genesis 16 tracking down and seeking after Hagar in the wilderness to save her. The God who fully makes himself known in Exodus 3 as the God of I am who I am. This is Yahweh. And so this, this dozen or so times that, that refer to that are then bracketed by its use here in Matthew, Matthew 21 with what is said in Jericho by the blind man. Son of David, Lord equating the Messiah with Yahweh. Have mercy on me. And even the crowds as they scream forward, Hosanna, quoting Psalm 118, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I believe by context then, what is being said here is beyond our sight. That when they are going and specifically getting these animals and the one that Jesus will ride and they are then accosted by bystanders and the owners, why are you doing this? The Lord has need of it. Jesus is saying, because Yahweh is here. Because God needs it. Because he's going to fulfill the second thing beyond our vision. He's going to fulfill all of this in the riding in of a donkey into Jerusalem. And that word itself, fulfill, is used in Matthew 15 times that this is being filled up to overflowing. It's the picture of a, of a vessel. And, and you, you're slowly filling it up when all of a sudden it overflows its container. And that's what's happening we, we see this, and we need to see it with our mind because otherwise we just read past this and the volume gets turned down. And at least the, then the most specific thing that's said, because we get this both in John's gospel and we get it in Matthew's, is that Zechariah is being fulfilled. Zechariah 9, to be specific. 9, verse 9 in our text. 
And that's where we're going to park for just a moment because you need the context more than just, oh, Zechariah said that, okay, say to the Tsar of Zion, behold, your king is coming, gentle, mounted on a donkey. If, if, you, if you didn't know better, you'd think that was all out of Zechariah, but it's not. Like what is also being fulfilled up is the first sentence there, say to the daughter of Zion, it's going to bring in Isaiah 62. And they are being mashed together for something we must see. And so what in the world is being fulfilled that Zechariah the prophet wrote about? Zechariah the prophet wrote in particular in the 500s, specifically chapters 1 through 8, and then there's a break of time between chapters 8 and 9. Chapters 1 through 8 are written between 520 and 518 B.C., 550 years before this event that Jesus has carefully orchestrated before the riding in on a donkey. And what's going on in the 500s is, in 539, the people, and I have a map of this, where, where the Jewish exiles in Babylon are sent home by Cyrus, just as Isaiah 45 predicted, by the way. They are sent home, and, and go, go to the map that showed that huge map. There we go. The map that... that which way they return in 538 is, is the first wave of returning exiles. They've been set free, out of captivity, no longer prisoners. And they've come back to a decimated Jerusalem and start to rebuild it. And this is the route, by the way, that, that the armies would also come to conquer Jerusalem. And they are returning by that route. And that's occurring even though it... It is in harsh, harsh conditions. And in that time period, Zechariah has eight visions that I'll quickly put in your mind. Eight visions, and I've got them listed for your help. The first one comes about between 520 and 518 BC in that there are four horses with riders. And one of those riders on a red horse is said to be the definite article, angel of the Lord. And that red horse is in a ravine, much like the Kidron Valley, with myrtle trees, not tall cedars, but these 20 to 30 foot evergreens. And he's among them. And when he's there, there are three other riders, and they've been patrolling the earth, and they come back and say, the earth is at rest. It's at rest. There's two different Hebrew words used in that text, neither one of them mean peace. It just means it's quiet. Of course it's quiet because King Darius from Persia has established an iron-fisted oppressive rule that you will not break the peace. Sounds like the Pax Romana of the first century. Rome instituted the peace that they would institute and if you broke it, you would be crucified. And in this vision, the, the red horse down in the lowest position of the valley, who is called the angel of the Lord. By the way, he shows up in Exodus 3 also. He is the pre-incarnate Christ. He is Yahweh. It says that he asked the Lord of hosts, God Almighty, the Lord of the heavenly armies. He asked him, how much longer how much longer before you have compassion on your people? 
the angel of the Lord is interceding for the people in Jerusalem in the 500s and cannot wait, not for this temporary quiet to, to keep going, but for the real peace to come with the inbreaking of the kingdom of God is what he's after. And then Zechariah is seen four horns which represent the oppressing nations like Persia, like Babylon, like Assyria, Rome. And they will be shattered and broken. And then that leads to the third vision where a Jerusalem that can't be measured because he sees this guy with a measuring tool trying to measure Jerusalem. And in the future, in those days, you will not be able to measure it because there will be so many people overflowing this place called Jerusalem, the city of God. You won't, you won't be able to measure it. You can see that in Revelation. And then it breaks into this fourth where Joshua, the high priest, yes, his name is Yeshua. Jesus, yes. Joshua, the high priest, came back with the first wave of returnees with the governor called Zerubbabel, and he's of the line of David. And those two govern the area. But in this vision, he sees Joshua in heaven being accused by Satan. And guess who's standing there? The angel of the Lord. And Joshua is cleansed of his sin so that he might be a representative in the temple on earth. But he sees further that Joshua will represent one who will come whose name is Branch. Whose name is Branch. Isaiah picks this up in chapter 4. In that day, in the future, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and adorning for all survivors. And it will be that come about when the branch is there that those left in this city will be called holy. Chapter 11 picks it up further. There will be a branch, a shoot, a root, a spring up from the stem of Jesse, a branch from his roots that will bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him and the spirit of the Lord will give him wisdom and understanding and counsel and strength and the spirit of knowledge and fear will be in him and he will delight to serve and live in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what he sees nor make decisions by what he hears, but he will be righteous. And with that righteousness, he will judge those who are afflicted. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. This is the branch. This is the root that comes in 53 out of dry ground where he grows up like before him, like a tender branch, like a root out of dry ground. The one who had no majesty, no stately form that if we looked upon him, he has no appearance, nothing that we should be attracted to him. He's just an ordinary man. He's a man of sorrows, though, because he's despised. He's forsaken. He's familiar. He's acquainted with affliction. Because he was despised, and we didn't esteem him. We didn't esteem him. We didn't look at him as though he had any value. This is the branch, and surely our griefs then he bore on himself, and our sins he took, because we considered him to be afflicted and smitten by God. That's the branch that in this vision, Zechariah says he's coming. 
further in that vision, it says that this is the one, not you, Zerubbabel, and not you, Joshua, who will rebuild the temple, this branch. And, and when this branch rebuilds the temple, it won't be just by himself. He will, he will include those who are far off, the Gentiles. That's what that means. The word is, appears in Isaiah 56 for the foreigner. When Pastor Jeremy read last week from Ephesians 2, it, it crippled me because I knew what was coming even after what he, he read, that we who were dead have been brought back to life by God. But because then in 2.13 and 2.17 it says, don't fear you who were far off because you have been brought in. By who? By this branch that Zechariah sees in the 500s. And he gives new meaning of what happens later in this week when at his trial, the, one of the first things he's accused of is, oh, he said he was going to tear the temple down and rebuild it in three days. And they, they joke and mock him for that. And the temple he was talking about was his body. The body that you as believers make up and that he is the head of. And Zechariah saw it. And it is beyond our sight when he rides into this city on a donkey that we forget this. And then there's the fifth vision. The fifth vision of, of, a, of a great lamp and, and lights, seven bowls with seven lamps, so 49 total to be so bright. And that, that light is coming and that light is made specific that it's, it's from God's hand and through his spirit. In fact, that's where the famous quote is, not by might nor by power will this be accomplished, but by the spirit of God. God makes it known then that nothing in his spirit will be impossible. And then the sixth is this giant scroll, dimensions two by one, but, but would almost fill this entire area with the law on it, that those who do reject and those who, who do break the law and, and in that rejection don't see him as their savior. And those who mistreat each other and blaspheme God, that this scroll will catch them. It will overtake them because it flies. It moves swiftly. The word will not go unheard. And it becomes a curse for those who reject this message. It leads to the seventh, which is where there's this figure of a, of a female deity is, is taken and placed in a basket and a, a, an iron lid is placed over the sovereignty of God over evil to, to remove this from his people. It is taken away by, by two beings all the way back to Babylon. And there's one truth that we know out of the exile that occurs is from this moment on in the 500s, while they struggle with many things like self-righteousness, they don't go back to the same idolatry that they had before exile. And this is a picture of God taking that away and placing it. But it still admits that evil is rampant on the earth. And then there's the eighth and final vision. And in that vision, again, we see those horses and riders, but this time we see them attached to chariots because God is coming as a warrior. God is coming as a warrior and will wreak havoc on those who have mistreated those on earth whom are his. And he sees this, this, this vision, really, that, that, that becomes paramount to what occurs next, that, that once he has taken the land back, 
that there becomes an object lesson that he gives Zechariah that's not a vision but physically happens. He says, go and gather some people and get some gold and silver from them and take it to a smith and fashion a crown. But don't put it on Zerubbabel. Don't put it on his head. If you'd done that, Darius would have come and it would have been looked at as rebellion. Put it on Joshua's head. Put it on the priest, the high priest's head. Coronate him. But just for a moment, because he's not the one you're waiting for. Take that crown and put it in the temple and allow it to await on the one who will come, whom I will send. And that object lesson sits there. Sadly, till I think, in my mind, this isn't in the Bible, till about 167 when Antiochus Epiphanes raids the temple and steals everything in there. All the valuables. You can read that in 1 Maccabees. The crown is gone. But they're to wait on this one who is coming. Chapters 7 and 8 form what is called a Hebrew chiastic structure, which means it works its way to one overarching message. And that message is this. God says, I will come and save you. I will be there and be your salvation. And that is the first eight chapters of Zechariah. And then chapter nine opens readily admitting that there's still conflict and, and war on the on the earth, and that this message of God, this, this one that we've been waiting for, this, this coronated priest, king, who holds both offices, is coming, and yet there is so much adversarial force against him that God, in chapter 9, mounts up as the divine warrior he was in Exodus 15. And basically the route that we showed you, the way that the exiles come back, he starts conquering one city after another, making his way to Jerusalem. When all of a sudden it says this, after he's come upon so many of those cities, he says, but in that day, the Gentiles that I am overtaking, I will remove the idolatry from them. And I will take a remnant from them. And those remnants will be like a clan of Judah. They will be brought in. They were far off, but they're going to be brought in. And they will be like the Jebusite. If you want to study something this week, study what happens to the Jebusites, how they are at once cursed and supposed to be wiped off the face of the earth and yet survive to the point that one of them, when David wants to build the altar where the temple is going to be, he buys it from a Jebusite who's still living among Israel. They've been brought in. And this is what God says, I'm going to include. I'm gathering those from around the world. I'm pulling them in. And I've seen them with my own eyes and therefore rejoice greatly. Our verse that is in Matthew and John comes to life. Rejoice then and shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, because behold, your king is coming to you. Behold, this divine warrior who has conquered all of these peoples and brought this remnant in. It is God Almighty, the Lord of hosts. Then who is this king? He is God's king. And he comes riding on a donkey. 
And it says that he is righteous. He fulfills all of God's legal requirements for a relationship. He's the only one who does. It says he is endowed with salvation, this one. And that doesn't mean he is savior, though he is. It means he himself will be, need to be saved. In his current condition, riding the donkey, he is one who also needs to be saved because he is humble. And that word humble is two syllables in the Hebrew, ani. And ani doesn't mean, oh, he's humble, he doesn't want any credit. It means he is poor and afflicted. And then he's marginalized in society. And then he is one who, like those with him, have been crushed by the powers that be. That's what the humility means in the Hebrew. And there's only one who fits that description. Humble. The next word that describes him says he is mounted, and I'm ready for this divine warrior to come in on a steed. He's mounted on a donkey. A beast of burden. A beast that does echo through time of, of Genesis 49 where Judah will always have the, the king's scepter. It, through time where, where David rode away from his son Absalom on a donkey, but his son Solomon, hopefully in a peaceful reign, rode his, on his coronation. But it echoes in our mind beyond that because it means that he is coming in peace. He's not coming with an army. So much so that the next verse, verse 10, which has to be given in context, is God speaking again, and God destroys the weapons of war. I will cut off the chariot. I will cut off the horses from Jerusalem. I will take the bows of war and cut them off. But this one, who comes on the donkey, will speak peace to the nations. This isn't a ceasefire. This isn't the quiet of chapter 1, verse 11 of Zechariah, where, where they saw those four horses said, yeah, all is quiet. This is shalom. This is what all of us want. This is the, the deep-seated justice for those who are oppressed and downtrodden. This is the righteousness that is accredited to you by somebody else when you don't deserve it. That's what this peace with God means. Read Romans 5.1 and find out how you've been afforded that peace. And of that peace, verse 10, his dominion will be from sea to sea. A picture of, of the global impact of whoever this is that's riding in on the donkey. And in that abject humility then, it is no stretch to our minds to see why Matthew then takes this Zechariah passage and puts Isaiah on top of it. And he quotes from Isaiah 62, final place we'll look this morning. He quotes from Isaiah 62, 11. Say to the daughter of Zion, your salvation is coming. And that, that little bit of text draws from the two, at least around it, but it pulls the weight of one who has been so low 
and is in such need of God's, God's, the divine warrior's help and rescue that we hear the servant song. We hear Isaiah 42. Behold, my servant in whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I am well pleased. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not scream or cry out or raise his voice in the street. A bruised reed he won't break and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he has brought justice to the nations. And on him the ends of the earth wait for his destruction, his instruction. We get that. And it brings it through the suffering service servant passage till we get to this point where we begin to hear, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will, will, will praise him for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself, he has so adorned me. We get these people who have accepted him and they are being changed in 62.2. They are actually given a new name. And that name appears at the end of this verse where we begin to hear this thing go through, go through the gates. A repetition of those, no matter where you are, need to see this one and leave exile. Do not remain where you are. The salvation is coming. You need to move toward it. Clear the way for the people. Build up, build up a highway. Make sure it's raised so that everyone can see the way. Remove the stones. Any impediment to it is being removed so that we can see him clearly. In fact, lift up a banner, the next statement says. Set a pole in which thousands could, could rally around and troops could come to. And there is only one banner. We love it in our society to say all roads lead to Rome. They might have in the first century, but there's only one way to salvation. And this banner points you to him. And you have to be made holy by this one riding a donkey into Jerusalem. You must come through him. And you can't miss him. And Isaiah is imploring you to go and go through the gates. Don't wait. For then in the verse we have, we have three, look at him. Look, 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 behold, behold, behold. The Lord has proclaimed this to the ends of the earth. Say to the daughters of Zion, lo, here comes your salvation. There he is. And some that day saw it, but the religious leaders didn't. Behold his reward and his recompense, what he has done and been paid for, and that the work of his hands is with him. It is those he is saving and will save. They are with him. And they, those who are renamed, those who have a new name, shall be called holy. How does that happen? It doesn't without him. You will be called redeemed, bought back out of slavery, bought back as a next of kin would do in those days. Rescued sought after your new name sought after no longer alone no longer unsure of your way he has come and got you he is the shepherd who leaves the 99 and comes after you sought after never forsaken 
final new name. Never forsaken. And thus we see, further than our eyes really can, that there is more to this story than just a man coming in, happened to get a donkey and ride down the hill purposely planned that we might see him coming as the king. The king who, who brings people with him that, that are of no stature, except they've been made holy, redeemed, sought after, and never forsaken. They are priceless. And he will come into the temple, and he will come into his own, and his own will reject him. But as many as receive him, to them he will give the right to be called and become children of God. That's this king who should have been met with the crown forged in the 500s, but instead will be crowned with thorns. Because quite honestly, thorns are the only thing this world produces without him. We are of no value without him. But on this day, Jesus rides in to save a people that peoples might be saved. We'll move to communion with a thought again from Zechariah. Because after those two verses, 9 and 10, verse 11 says this. This will be because of the blood of my covenant with you. This is only used here in Zechariah 9 and Exodus 24. Exodus 24 was the, 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 the sprinkling of the blood that, that, that sealed the deal. Like, like God's affection for you that's so overwhelming that he will spill blood to seal it. This isn't just, yeah, I'll sign my name. This is, it's going to take blood and I'll provide it. And this same language then becomes language Jesus will use this week on Passover when he says, this is the blood, my blood of the new covenant. And that is to make you Prisoners who are set free from the pit to be prisoners of hope. I'll be honest, I spent all week trying to figure out what prisoners of hope is. I can't grasp it. I got it. Those covenant families have it. No walls, no bars, no chains. I'm set free to serve the one who made a blood covenant for me? Yes and amen. There'll be stations left and right after you've had time to pray over this thought. Uh, also, I believe we've got, yes, yeah, self-serves in the back. We will come forward and take communion together as we continue to worship the one who rode in to Jerusalem for us on a donkey. Let's pray and come forward when you're ready. Heavenly Father, we praise you for this day. Uh, 
may it never go unnoticed. Thank you, Father, for, for what occurred this week, the suffering, the intentionality of your son being the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And so, Father, on this night, we're going to remember that on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, broke it, gave it to his disciples and says, take and eat, all of you. For this is my body, which is broken for you. And when the supper was over, Jesus took a cup, gave thanks to you, gave it to his disciples and says, this is my blood of a new covenant, which is poured out for you and for the many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. Father, we pause considering your great acts in history. In the name of Christ, amen. You've been listening to a sermon from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.